Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Tonight we will go back in time to seasons past, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard game, and one final score that would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight we will explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History and its Memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publisher and Broadcasting Network. In conjunction with Slick Enterprises, we're live from the Wallingford, Connecticut home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. I'm Bob Slick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America that focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 140-plus years of football history and memorabilia, and you'll find us on the web at www.gridirongreatsmagazine.com We're sponsored by MSB Sports Cards. Check out their website for one of the largest selections of football cards and vintage football memorabilia. Their store is available at www.msbsportscards.com And we're also sponsored by BST Auctions. Check out their upcoming auction information on their website at www.bstauctions.com. It is at this time I am honored to introduce my guest co-host, who's filling in for Joe Squires this evening. He is a longtime contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine. He is a San Francisco 49ers football historian and San Francisco 49ers football memorabilia historian. He hails from... The West Coast, San Francisco, California. I'd like to introduce to our listeners tonight my good friend, Mr. Martin Jacobs. Martin, welcome to the show this evening. How are you, Bob? I'm very good. I'm very good. How's the weather out there? Because I got snow, sleet, freezing rain. Well, we had, we, had two, we had two weeks of uh, heavy rain, lots of flooding. And yesterday and today, the last two days have been just beautiful sunshine weather, about 65 degrees. Wow. So we, wow. I cherish that. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, I'm glad you were able to help us out this, this evening for the show. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of things. And in particular, uh, we would like to spend some time on uh, your recent book, which was entitled San Francisco 49ers Legends. The Golden Age of Pro Football. And again, I've, I read your books, and this was just another one of your books where I started reading it at night, and uh, Brenda started yelling down to me, are you coming to bed? And I said, I only got a few more pages left. I want to finish it. And to me, it was the type of book that uh, I couldn't put down. I read it from cover to cover in one night. And my first question for you is, why did you, did you decide to uh, write this book? Well, it's a labor of love, and and to me, I'm, you know, I'm 74 years old now, and I, I felt I wanted to do something to give back to the uh, to all the fans and let them know what it was like growing up in the 50s and 60s, and how the game has changed, and with the rule changes, and, and from everything, you know, being at the stadium and mm-hmm. the way it was at Old Kezar Stadium. And uh, I did it for for that reason only, just like to put down my, well, you could call it my obituary. <laughs> but it's, it was a labor of love, and uh, I best described it as if I was still back in those days watching the game. And uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the book because it's... Uh, yeah, I got, a, I got to say this. When I was reading it, I, I just really was captured by the way you wrote it because you did feel like you went back in time, uh, to say the least. And I, and I can envision myself, and I know I've told this story numerous times, that I remember the first time I ever went into the Yale Bowl with my father, 
It was 1966. It was a warm fall day. My father and I were rope guards, and those were the days where Yale used to get 70,000 people for a game on a Saturday. And I still remember my father with his top hat, his short sleeve white shirt and tie, and I was clutching his hand because I had never seen so many people in my life all at once. And I was just hoping I wasn't going to lose them because I said to myself, I have no idea how I'm going to get home or whatever. My father was very strict with me and said, you don't let my hand go until we get into the seats. And I, and I, and I do remember, do remember, and during the game, uh, a couple of the students were trying to cross the rope uh, to get into the, um, the rope basically uh, separated the box seats, if you want to call them that, because it was a bowl. There was all just um, benches everywhere. And uh, the ropes basically prevented people from the general mission seats to go to the reserve seats there. And I remember a few times he yelled at a few of the students. He said, get back. You're not crossed that. Get back <laughs> to your seats. And they turned around and then they moved. That was for sure. But yeah. again, I, we're talking about your book here. And I, and I that one part of your book where you were talking about going uh, to the game with your father there brought, really brought back that memory for me. Uh, well, you know, you know, the thing of it is, when you put it down on paper, it's there forever. It's a his, it's the yep. history. And and if you were to ask me to do this book ten years from now, I don't know if my memory will be suited to remember back, back then. But seeming, I could still recall everything. I tried to cover everything, from a fan's point of view to the vendors to the band, to the majorettes to the. Uh, Anybody who had to do with the 49ers, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I tried to paint the picture. It's just like painting a picture, and I tried to be as articulate as I could. Yeah, and you, and, did, a, you did a, f- a fantastic job on it. I mean, again, you, you felt like when you were reading that book that you were just back in time. And again, yeah, you know, the problem you I'm having now, Bob. I, Bob, the problem I'm having now is finding people to share this with. Uh, all the fans today, they're only interested in what's happening today. They're not into the history. Everything is in the future. Right. And it's it's such a valued thing to remember. But, but I try to think, well, maybe they, they just don't care. I mean, you have to have lived it, and I lived it out there. I mean, I was the first one in the stadium. I'd be there at 9 a.m. in the morning. I'd be the last one to leave, maybe 4.30 or 5. And I just couldn't wow. get enough of, wow. of the experience because uh, wow. Kizar Stadium was just to the greatest stadium at the time. Well, you know, I think it, it goes along with the education of the fan. If we can educate people about the history of the game, which is what Gridiron Greats Magazine has been trying to do for years now, I think thank people God. become interested. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank uh, God people, you're, you're, you're doing it because uh, you're the only one covering the past, and it just uh, it's just great. I mean, I love it because I'm, I'm a collector, and I love, I love looking back and just hearing stories from people because I can go to the game now, and I don't get the experience that I had back then. Uh, you're not oh, close I, to the I players. You know, I agree it, with that 100%. Um, we, but yeah, then I, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, and and the fan, the fans today, you, you want to discuss statistics? They don't care about statistics. They just want to know right. we win, we lose. I'm out there to have a good time, a social. It's not like an ex, like living it or playing the game for for the love of the game and and the dedication right. and the loyalty. It, it's not there anymore. And because right. of that, uh, I'm I'm a little bit discouraged from. From what I read and hear, and I read the paper every day, and it's just the same old thing. You know, they just don't pay attention to the to the past, and that's right. why I do these right. books. <laughs> well, I, I I truly appreciate the book. What I was going to say is, when Brenda and I go to um, my wife Brenda and I go to um, Yale games now, it, it to me it's tough because you're in a stadium that holds seventy thousand plus. You're lucky you get five ten thousand people, and it. People are more disinterested in the game than anything else. I mean, it's just a social event for them, like you're saying, and they yeah. really don't see what's going on, on on the field. They're not seeing any plays develop, or they're, they're not they're, they're lost. And again, yeah, they're go lost. Back to the and 60s, yeah, it's go just back to the uh, 60s it's a, and, yeah, different feeling. It's a different feeling, and yeah. I, I I have five children and and four boys, and it's. Uh, they're just not interested in the past, and it just, uh, it's just a little discouraging because it was such a great, wonderful time. 
and uh, to collect right. a chin strap or get get an autograph on the field. Now it's no such thing. You have to pay right. big money for an autograph, and it just discourages me because I just think that's not the way it, sh- it was meant to be, but that's the way it is. Oh, I I yeah. agree. I agree. Did you have a favorite chapter that you wrote? Um, yeah, I book? sure did. I sure did, and it was called. It's called the Fighting Spirit, and it was a player named Joe Arenas. Now, Joe, the reason uh, this is my favorite chapter and my favorite interview of a 49er is because Joe Arenas was a World War II veteran at Iwo Jima, and he hit the beach. On he hit the beach, and he got shot through the back. Through the back, mm-hmm. he was supposed to be paralyzed, never walk again. He recuperated. Three to four years recuperation, uh, seven months in the Navy hospital. He came back, got drafted by the 49ers in the eighth round. He wasn't really considered to make the team, but he was good in college because he played a year in college. And he ended up being a great 49er, returning punts, kickoffs, and as a running back. In fact, he still holds the record uh, for, um, I think, with a 34.6 return on kickoff return. As for a 49er right, right. all-time record, so that's my favorite chapter because of the story and the the comeback that he made from being shot in the back to at uh, mm-hmm. World War II to be a great 49er. That's a great story. Well, I think I think the whole flavor of football, especially when you had the AAFC right after World War II, you had all the players coming home from the war. America was starved for entertainment. Football was still a man's game. And these are guys who were veteran tough who basically saw their lives pass in front of them, you know, between Europe and between the Pacific. They're happy to be home, and now they're getting paid to, to play a kid's game the way they feel about it. And they played with, with a spirit. They played with a love of the game. They played for victory. It was just such a different time. And, and to me, it's just so lost today in the game. It's just, it's just amazing. And, and it's funny you brought up Pick uh, returns. It's so difficult to watch an NFL game today when there's either a punt or, more importantly, at the kickoff after a touchdown or the beginning or second half of the game. Because how many times it doesn't get returned? Because it's yeah. 20 yards deep. I mean, you yeah. might as well kick it into the stands for crying out loud. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know? and it's still just to watch the the point after touchdown being kicked so far away. I mean, it just yeah. kind of ch- changes the game to me. It just, uh, I, I just don't, uh, I, I just don't like it. But what are you going to do, Bob? We have to, to deal with yeah, it. I, I mean, that's the way it it is now. But I have no doubt that the players back from the from those days could compete with the players today. Because our Bob St. Clair was a personal friend of mine, and he said it was all about technique. He said you could have a 200-pound, 240 lineman against a 300-pounder, and he could outmaneuver him. It's all the technique, and he was sold on that. He thought for sure that the mm-hmm. the all pros from then could compete with the all pros of today. And I could, I agree. Oh, I, I I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, I'm they sure didn't they get could, to work out. They didn't get to work out, Bob. Uh, eight hours a day in weight rooms and and all that. They right. they like Hugh McElhaney. He worked out four hours in the morning. And he sold potato chips in the afternoon. I mean that's yep. that was the lifestyle of pros back then. Just imagine yep. if they yep. put uh, uh, twelve months a year into training like they can now. It'd be a whole difference. Those players would be just as good. Right. I no agree a hundred percent with them. I agree with that. I got another question. I got to ask you. Um, did do you have a favorite book that you've read over the years on the 49ers? I'm just curious about that, and I'm sure our listeners would be curious about that. I mean, you are all, to me, you are Mr. 49er. There's well, no well I, have I, a, I have a number, I, yeah, I have a number of the books, Bob, but there's one called Founding 49ers, Founding 49ers by David Newhouse. Uh, it's called okay. The Dark Days Before the Dynasty. That's a good book also, but that deals again with the past, with with the older. But, mm-hmm. of course, that's that's what I like reading about. And there's another book called The Million Dollar Backfield, and that's by yep. Dave Newhouse also. So that uh, yep. uh, 
that's in in fact you know i i just learned that recently that the the million when i did this last book that the million the 49ers million dollar backfield wasn't the first million dollar backfield the first million dollar backfield was the uh cardinals chicago cardinals of 1947 i forgot the players names but they were the first uh million dollar backfield so oh, that okay. name really okay. didn't originate with the niners and that's very interesting for the simple reason that the Cardinals really never never did anything over the years, especially when they were in Chicago, and did even less uh, until they actually got into Arizona. You know, and uh, that is interesting. Although back then, having a small league, there were tough teams, and all the teams were pretty pretty fairly you know talent was pretty fairly distributed throughout the teams. Well, I know I, I know the owner was Charles Bidwell, and he and yep, I do know yep. that the running backs were now that I remember was Paul Chrisman, Charlie Trippy, yep. Paul Harder, yep. and and Marshall Goldberg. But like you said, yep. it wasn't the first, they were the first uh, they were the first million dollar backfield. They were the dream right. backfield until McElhaney, until the Forty ers McElhaney, Perry Tittle, and John Henry Johnson became the million dollar backfield nineteen fifty four. Interesting. I want to. I, I want to squeeze in one more question before I guess we have our guests coming up. Uh, the there's one area that I, I from time to time I get questions asked of me. How difficult is it to put together and or find AAFC game programs uh, from 46 to 49 as a collector? Uh, let's put it like this: you have to have patience. The best place to find them is on eBay, but you have to be mm-hmm. patient. I'd say about every three or four months, uh, you'll find one from 46, 47, but they do come up frequently, but not the real popular uh, games. Like championship programs are harder to find, right. of course, than than the preseason or regular season. So you just have to be patient, and then you have to bid on it and hope that you can outbid your competitor because it's a... There's other people out there that also collect the media guides and the football programs, uh, the All-American right. Football Conference. And to me, you're reading history of, of the AAFC, and because it was such a short history, and there's so, you know, to me, so few programs, so few yeah. press guides out there. And, In fact, uh, I'm missing a with... program. I'm, I'm missing a program with the 49ers versus, versus a semi-pro football team called the San Jose Packers, Played in San Jose okay. in 1952, and only 600 people attended the game. So it's just a program wow. that I've been looking for the last 35 years, and it just hasn't wow. come up. Wow. But uh, they're, they, they did have a program there. The 49ers organization actually has a copy of the program. But I've been trying to purchase one to complete my uh, run of programs. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So if any listeners have it, please contact us. Yeah. We'll set you up with Martin, and I'm sure right. you can negotiate a deal on that one. <laughs> sure. Okay. Now it's, we're gonna we're gonna move right along in our show tonight, and I'd like to introduce our guest. Our guest tonight is an expert and collector of vintage footballs and early equipment of the game. He was featured as our super collector in our winter 2014 issue. And he's recently written an article, uh, I believe it was in issue 54, on the oldest football in existence. I would like to welcome tonight Mr. Robert Tibby. Bob, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Bob, I'm going to start off by asking you to, and I know we spoke, I believe it was at the Cleveland National a couple years back, and I want to you if you could give our listeners some background on how you became interested in collecting vintage football equipment and vintage footballs oh boy sometimes i wonder that myself (laughs) 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 when i look around and see everything i have but you know as as a kid i grew up in pittsburgh and i followed the steelers i think bobby lane was the the big feature player then and the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Hornets, which was the hockey team then. But, you know, everything changes. So instead of the Hornets, now they have the Pittsburgh Penguins. And on the good side of the change, the Steelers now win more than they lose, and I live on the other side (laughs) of the country. But, you know, that's really what got me interested is change. 
You know, okay. change is what got me interested because that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how football has changed since it started in the 1800s up to today. Mm-hmm. I remember the first football helmet I, I played with when I was a kid. It was an old leather football helmet, had a little padding in it, no face protection. It was just something that was passed on from my dad. Now you look at the game and, and the technologies involved, the carbon fiber and Kevlar helmets with full face shields, their impact-absorbing helmets custom-fitted to fit on a player's head. In many cases, they're fitted with a radio transmitter and impact sensors. You know, so mm-hmm. it's that change that intrigued me. So, you know, as an adult, when I started collecting, that was that was what interested me, was the evolution of football and other sports. I don't just collect football. But it just led me to search for older and older equipment and artifacts. And well, Robert, so today, this, is, this is Martin. Uh, I, can you tell us about your vintage uh, helmet collection? Oh, yeah. Yeah, as I said, you know, I, was, I would say that probably the theme of my collection of helmets is to show the different types of headgear from the earliest days of football all the way up through mm-hmm. the introduction of, you know, the modern-style helmet. I, I guess, you know, if I were looking at my helmet, my collection, and I wouldn't say helmets because I have headgear as well, it starts, the, the earliest piece I have is an 1860s football stocking cap, you know, which is wow. what they what they wore initially just to protect their ears. And then chronologically, I have uh, a variety of strap strap head harnesses, again, those simple strap helmets that in many cases were made by shoemakers just to protect mm-hmm. the ears. I have four strap and eight straps, all from about the 1890s. And then I think as we moved into the 1900s, you know, then they suddenly became a little more concerned about protecting their head and their forehead. So there was a real mm-hmm. variety of helmets then. I have flat top helmets both leather and canvas, those were popular 1900 to the 1920s. Aviator helmets, rain cap style helmets, popular from 1900 to about 1920. The dog ear styles, which came out pretty much in the mid-teens, and they were popular into the 30s. Then the Grange style helmets up into the 30s and right up to when they riddle first started making the first plastic helmets. Mm-hmm. So, and then I have a variety of, I guess, what I would call unique styles, including an executioner helmet, several of the executioner face masks, four-tab and eight-tab Princeton helmets from the 20s. I even have a reach-adjustable helmet that was made, a reach made in 1903 to 1906, and supposedly they would adjust any type type of head. So that's you know, pretty much a full range. Bob, i got to ask you a question, though, while we're talking about helmets, and try to refresh my memory, because I was trying to think about it today. When we were at the National, you had, I thought you had picked up some quasi-rare headgear from the 20s. Was that true, or was it something else? I forgot now. I don't know. Well, actually, when I first met you at at the National, yeah, I was buying a helmet from the booth right next to you, and right, okay. what I was okay. what I was picking right. up, yeah, it was a it was a helmet from the uh, 1930s, but it was very unique as it had a, a great a full cage face mask on it. That's right. Which okay, was, I remember that now. Okay, yep, yep. Describe that. Well, it, it's 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 definitely a pro style football helmet it's made by reach Mm -hmm. but what intrigued me most was the face mask because prior to that you didn't have i mean in the 20s they had the executioner helmets which had a face piece on it but when you started getting into the metal face masks you know those weren't very popular until probably in the in the 30s the late 30s and the 40s so Mm -hmm. that full that full face mask, it's one of the only ones I've seen of that style. I think at that okay. same show, I also picked up a, an early 40s helmet that had what they called the cowcatcher face mask on it. 
Okay. All right. I can only imagine how that steel frame could do injury to a, a player by, you know, tackling or whatever, and you get caught in that. And, again, just think about it. How many guys played with nothing, and then all of a sudden you see this, and it's like, wow. I can only imagine what they were talking about on the field after seeing that. You know what I mean? So. Oh, yeah, Bob. You know, I look at some of this equipment that I have, and some of it's so primitive that not mm-hmm. only would I think it do damage to another player, but I think some of it would be damaging to the player wearing it. Right. Now, in the period, right. you know, they started, I talked about the stocking cap that they wore in the 1860s and up into the 1870s to protect their ears. But they also had the the nose guards, the old morel nose guards, the single piece of hard mm-hmm. plastic covered your nose, you bit on a, a mouthpiece to hold it up against your face. I have mm-hmm. several of those, but, but, you know, I look at those, and actually I've tried the bond, and you just think, wow, that would probably mm-hmm. do more damage to your face than it would protect you. Yeah. Well, Bob, yeah. Uh, I do know, I do know, Bob, that uh, in 1954, the 49ers up to that time had more face masks. That Joe Perry, a fullback, he wore a lucite face mask, and it, w- it almost covered his whole face. It had a cutout for his mouth where he could breathe through. But it was it was a plastic mask. But it they they did away with that. I think after a year or two. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I have a couple of those, and it is. It's just a plain piece of, and I'm not sure what it's made out of, a hard plastic or something, but it's, it is it is transparent, right? And there's just a little oval cut in the front for your face, for your yeah. mouth, so you could breathe. Those, Yeah, those were around probably for, as you said, you're exactly right, a couple years and yeah, they're and supposed then, to shatter. They said they shattered, yeah. and the players complained about it. And then they went to, I guess, the the steel bar mask that coated with the rubber, the single bar mask. I think Cleveland Cleveland Browns started wearing that, and then they had a radio in their helmet. Do you have a helmet with the radio that they supposedly put in uh, the NFL? I think it was about 1956. I think. Paul no, I don't have any of the. I don't have any helmets or the radio in it. What I focus on in my collection is I, I'm try, I try to focus on the late 1800s all oh, yeah. the way up until, you know, about, 19, about 1950 when we got into what I consider the modern year. Mm-hmm. So, wow. you know, I'm try, wow. I, I sort of focus on – I want to get back to the very beginning, to this – the birth of the sport and sort of follow it up into the modern period. I'm just curious, uh, uh, Robert, where would you find these these helmets? I know at the national convention they might pop up, but where where would you find a helmet from the early 1900s or something like that? Well, I've been collecting probably for 40, 50 years. So, you know, initially it was garage sales, yard sales, people cleaning out their barns, you know, and then wow. Wow. and then as you mentioned earlier with with some of the stuff that that you collect, you know, with when eBay came along suddenly uh, there was a lot of stuff available that Do you see a lot uh, of fakes in out there in the industry, people passing on a helmet from say 1900 that really isn't it's hard. I think it's hard to do that with with a helmet. Uh, now there are companies out there that do make helmets that are, you know, throwback helmets and and so forth. But but I think I, I think most collectors can see those, and you always see the keyword somewhat on eBay when it says you know like flat top style helmet. You know when they put that extra word in there. Yeah. yeah. But. But you're right. I mean, there are, and I do collect, you know, I collect baseball, basketball, all kind of things. And some of the sports, yeah, there are a lot of, you really got to do your homework. There's no yeah, doubt definitely. about that. Definitely. I'm sure you gotta you got to have an encyclopedic knowledge, especially when you see something at a barn sale or a tag sale or whatever. And, and you know, obviously you're going to take a chance on it. And, again, 
if the person selling it knew what they actually had was the real artifact of the game, you wouldn't be finding it at a tax sale. You know what I mean? So yeah, again, that's that's. that's... A, but that is definitely something that you know it, you can find things like that at, at, at that time. Now, last issue, you wrote an article on what is considered to be the oldest football you own. Can you shed some light on that to our listeners and, and uh, individuals who did not see that article yet? Oh, certainly. Yeah, the, the oldest football that I own is is in fact the oldest known football with an inflatable bladder that's, you know, tucked inside a rubber cover with a, with a slit in there so you can lace it and, you know, inflate it or reinflate it and then relace it. The ball itself, this is actually the, the ball is the prototype for, for the very first modern football. So it was patented in December of 1867 by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. In fact, the ball has on it all the original tags that were attached to it by the Patent Office 150 years ago. I think there's two... You walk over here, I can see the ball. Yeah, there's two two tags on it. You know, one that shows the the patent number and who submitted it and the dates, and then there's another tag on there showing when it was patented and stuff. And they're they're actually on there with a little piece of wire, and they were put on there by the patent office, and, and they're still on there. So, you know, those really established the exact date and age of the ball. And, you know, 1867, that's, what, two years before the first known college football game. Right, so, right. And I actually contacted the patent office, and I have a certified copy of the patent that goes with the ball. It was issued to Henry A. Alden, who was an employee in, with the New York Rubber Company, and he was the one who submitted the patent on behalf of the New York Rubber Company. So the ball was patented Can December you? 31st, 1867. And some people say to me, well, how do you know that's the, the oldest ball? And, you know, I can say with 100% confidence that this is the first and oldest bladder-style football. Because it was patented. If there were any before it, they wouldn't have granted it a patent. So have, have you taken that ball to the Hall of Fame or the NFL or College Hall of Fame? I'm just curious that with the, what uh, if they have anything close to anything like that? Well, actually, the, the the Hall of Fame, the oldest football in the Hall of Fame, is is dated to be about 1890. So this ball is. Quite a bit wow. older than that ball. Wow. 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 Unbelievable. Yeah, when you when you sent that article over, I, I must have read it like four times, and I, and I was just in shock to actually see that kind of find. And uh, I, I, I received many, many comments on that article saying that it was just an incredible find on your part. And I said, well, knowing Bob's collection, I, I can see why he owns it, because, uh, you know, he, your, your collection is just unbelievable as far as as far as what you what you own. But that really, really to me was uh, just an amazing find. And and again, because you have the patent, I, I do not question in any way, shape, or form that that was a legal patent, and therefore that is the earliest football. Now somebody can prove an earlier patent, which I don't see many people forthcoming on that. You know what I mean? So uh, that's amazing. Well, you know, if there was an earlier patent of any kind, it would have to have been for a different type of ball. Right, right, right. Otherwise, oh, I'm, there's no I'm way. Cur- to... I'm curious, Robert. What are the top three items in your collection? Oh Is boy, that would that be one? Yeah, of them? that that's. It's hard to pick the top three, but if 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 I had to, if I had was on my way out of the house because it was on fire and I had to grab a couple items real quick, <laughs> <laughs> I'd say probably the. The 1860 football stocking cap I have, which also in the early catalogs you'll see them labeled as skull caps as well. You know that that was the earliest form of football headgear, and it took me. Oh, I'll bet I looked for for something like that for I don't know decades, 
and you know I, I was really lucky to get one. So that uh, I'd say another one of my favorite items is an 1894 University of Pennsylvania Pennsylvania football jacket or smock, and uh, I, that's that's a real nice piece. It's got the player's initials painted on the front of the jacket. And on the back, very large, there's painted uh, U of P and 94. And they're painted in pens, colors of red and blue. And actually, I did some research on that, and I talked to the people at the University of Pennsylvania. And doing some research, I was able to actually identify the player. It was uh, W. Stoddart. And we graduated 1898 uh, from their dental school, and the wow. university sent me a sent me an old picture from their archives, a team picture. So, so that was really nice. I also have a full Spalding Union suit ensemble, which includes a sleeveless football jacket, along with the reeded pants and the, that great big elastic waistband that they would would put around there to keep everything everything tight. And then I guess picking my top three, of course, I would have to pick my 1867 football that we just talked about. And, and, and the reason I picked these as my, my top three is because they really date to the very beginning of American football. And the stocking cap is from the 1860s, the ball, 1867, the football jacket, 1894, I mean, we're talking, we're talking about the stuff that forms the DNA of football. That, that's an that's an amazing top three. I mean, that 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 is the history of the game, literally tied up in three pieces. It's just it's just amazing. I'm curious when uh, you you mentioned that, um, that, for lack of a better term, the cape type uniform. Do you see? Uh, uh, let, let me rephrase that. Do you actually see those from time to time? Because I always have people ask me, you know, wh- where can I find older uniforms? And they're talking about 30s and 40s, not, nothing that old. But do you actually see a lot of those, or are they exceptionally rare? I, w- I would assume they're rare, but since you are active in that section of the hobby, do you see them from time to time, often, whatever? Well, the 30s and the 40s aren't that rare. Those are, those are, you can pretty much find those on on eBay. But getting back mm-hmm. into the older stuff, I mean the 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 football jacket that I just talked about from the University of Pennsylvania, the 1894. It took me decades to get that, and I only okay. have the one. And then the the Spalding, the full Spalding football union suit. That's about a 1903 vintage uniform, and, and yeah, I only have one of those too. <laughs> so there, there are a lot of items, and and that's how you know when I when I start trying to answer a question like what's your favorite piece, that's that's what gets tricky because you know there are pieces that I really really appreciate because of their history. But there's others mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. because of their scarcity, I think, wow, it took me collecting 40 years. This is the only one I've ever seen of this that was available, for example, the, right. the football stocking cap. Right. And, you and know, I, and then I, I have some. I, go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. So I was just saying, it's the scarcity of some of these items. And even with the helmets, I have a couple helmets that I've hunted for for 10, 15, 20 years, and, you know, and and, and they're just like one of a kinds, like the Chicago-style mm-hmm. helmet I have, and, and I have one of the, one of the Spalding 50s, what they, what they call it, the improved helmet, because they made it out of the, out of the real hard sole leather, and it only was mm-hmm. around for a couple years, because they outlawed that type of leather in the game. <laughs> You know, you know, Robert. You know, I collect Forty Nine er uniforms, and I must say, you've had much better success in finding things than I have. 
And the 49ers <laughs> were started operation 1946 to find anything from 1946, 47, 48. It takes me years. Like like I, I picked up, I think in the last 10 years, one jersey, an Alan Beals uh, jersey from 1948, which he was one of the leading receivers in the old American football conference. But to find an old shirt is really difficult, or a 49ers shirt from that period. If you don't, if I don't find it to a family or a relative, uh, it just doesn't come up on eBay. Or uh, I just have to be lucky. You know, I got lucky oh. one year just being in a 49er game, and somebody was walking around with a number 84 shirt. Well, it was a recent player, but he says his dad had an 84, number 84, which was Billy Wilson of the 49ers from 1956. So I made contact, and I ended up purchasing the jersey. But I have to extremely be lucky to find anything back uh, when it gets back to the 40s or something like that. But you get them back to the early 1900s. That's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, very yeah, different a- focus, though, because I think I would have a real – Real difficult time too if I sat down and said, "Oh, I want Bobby Lane's jersey." I'd probably have to hunt and maybe never find that, you know. So when I'm, but when I sit down and say, "Oh, I want to see if I can find a, a uniform from the early 1900s," you know, I'm, I got a little bit broader of a range because I'm not specifically going after a certain player or a certain team. I'm just going after a certain period. That's very true. That's very true. Well, speaking of that, do you have any memorable collecting experiences you'd like to share with our audience? I would have to say probably my most memorable collecting experiences kind of fall into two categories, odd finds and finding the odd. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I guess what I mean by odd finds is, you know, sometimes you just get something that you didn't, expect you would get or didn't didn't think you'd have an opportunity to get and just the way it came to you is a little bit and it's an odd find i guess uh, if i could give an example or two i talked about the 1894 university of pennsylvania football jacket i have mm-hmm. when i originally mm-hmm. saw that it was on an auction site and it was listed as a cowboy vest and it was actually dis- it was actually displayed on a little mannequin over a flannel shirt. <laughs> wow! So, wow! Amazing. Holy mackerel! You and I have a nineteen. Uh, wow! Yeah. It didn't take long though for people to to tell the seller what they had. But <laughs> <laughs> I have a nineteen ten wow. canvas flat top football helmet. And it actually, when I first saw it, it was with a pair of football pants and a pair of stacked wooden cleats. And this was back when I was still mostly getting my stuff from garage sales and yard sales and so forth. And this was, I had gone by an estate sale, and they were cleaning the house out. And there was a little pile of trash in the back that they were going to burn and this uniform was in that pile of trash because they thought, oh, that's that's nothing anybody would want. So I was able to save that from the pile of wow. trash, and it's in my collection. And then oh, when I do that, wow. so that's those are what I consider odd finds. Finding the odd, I guess what I, what I would call the odd items are some of the things I have in my collection that are part of the game of football, but not obvious items not things that people would sit down and say oh yeah antique football you know most people think of the uniforms and the helmets and the balls and and you know but mm-hmm. but I've got some odd items that were part of the game that you just don't really think of I have a an example I have a goldsmith wire helmet form it was made in the 1920s and what it was for was when your helmet got wet, since the helmets were very soft and flexible then, you would stretch it over this, this form to keep its shape <laughs> when you weren't wow. wearing it. Wow. I have a, another example would be a spalding lacing device that was used to 
to lace the old footballs when you had to lace them and unlace them to, to inflate them. It's patented November 14th, 1925. And I have a variety, I have a lot of stuff like that. In fact, I was actually thinking of drafting an article for, for the magazine if, if you think your readers would be interested in some of these, what I call, oddities of the sport. Oh, I'd, I'm sure they would be. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just incredible. Like I said, when I first got that, you know, when we met and you were talking about it, and I said, wow, I, I just couldn't believe that because I really, over the years, yeah, I've met people, you know, who've collected specific team jerseys, team helmets. I never really met anybody over the years that went into the actual equipment of the game, and in your case, taking it, you know, from the beginning of the game to the 20s and 30s, so on and so forth. So that's what makes, to me, your collection just so unique. And, and, and to me, it's it's Hall of Fame quality. I mean, it's 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 stuff that I'm sure people in the Hall of Fame wouldn't even know what what it is. You know what I mean? So uh, it's can it's, I ask can I ask Robert, Robert a question? Robert, uh, I, this always floats through my mind that someday, when 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 I I pass on, where will my collection go? And I'm thinking, well, my children don't care about collecting. What what I do, and and then uh, the Hall of Fame. I don't know the Forty Nine. Do you have any thoughts like where your collection might end up someday, like uh, in a museum? Boy. Or you know that that's a question that I've asked myself many times, and you know, and pondered quite a bit. Uh, I have two sons, so I'm sure there's some stuff certainly that they would be interested in, but. And there are pieces that along the way that I've collected that, you know, for example, I had an, a Loyola. Oh. All right, I can't pronounce the name of the college very well, but I, but I had a football <laughs> uniform that I researched through them, and and when I researched it through their historic department, they were quite interested in getting it, and so there are some things that I've told my, told my wife that when I pass on, you know send this to that historic department or mm-hmm. but it yeah it is yeah, yeah floated through to, my mind too <laughs> yeah I, but you, you know I, one I thing think... that I really appreciated hearing Martin was about your book because Bob you were just talking about the focus of my collection and that's what I, that's what I went for I'm going for the history of the sport how did it start how did it change and what are all the things that went with it? Not just the uniforms and the balls and stuff. I heard Martin talk about, you know, the vendor material and so forth. And I do have some vendor aprons and stuff like that. I mean, it was all part of the game. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, what people don't realize that I think, you know, Martin, you know, we've talked about this in the past too. They don't have a strong appreciation of the game. They don't have a strong appreciation of where the game came from. You know, when you really look at 1860s, you know, how rugby evolved into football, so on and so forth. They don't have an appreciation of where all this stuff came from, what it actually is, and is it actually preserved. And I and I use a, a simplistic example today. A lot of places, a lot of teams now are doing their media guide online. Okay. Now we mm-hmm. have quite a few readers of gridiron greats who are these are gentlemen who do not use the computer you know they still call me they still write and they want the physical piece of paper and to me paper is almost being phased out for what reason i really don't know other than it's expensive to print mail so on and so forth but we're losing a big part of our history of the game if let's say all of a sudden the nfl decides and i'm sure this is going to happen down the road all media guides are online you can't get a physical media guide anymore, and it's going to impact the history of the game. So what you know, what Martin has done with the 49ers and Bob, what you've done with your equipment collection, it's just it's mind-boggling because you have preserved that whole aspect of the sport that to me would have been long, long gone if you two gentlemen did not you know work on it as diligently have, basically spending a lifetime collecting these items and. Um, Bob, I'm just I'm just floored. I'm almost speechless. 
you know, when looking at your collection and seeing what you have there and just see, it is the history of the game that you preserved and you saved over the years. It's just, and it's an amazing accomplishment. And sadly, though, I think every collector comes to that point, okay, where's the collection go if something happens? And, um, you know, it, it's tough. I wish we could see more regional football-type museums in the country and not worry about having to go to a, a Canton to see the Pro Football Hall of Fame or go to the College Hall, uh, Hall of Fame. If we could see regional, more regional types of museums, I think you could spread the history a lot better, number one, and number two, and educate more people on it. Well, you know Bob, I mean? you know, you know, the stadiums now, the NFL stadiums do incorporate museums inside. Like the Forty right, Niners right. have one, Green Bay, and a few other teams. Yep, so they yep, they, they yep. are doing that. Yeah, but but I, I think, you I know, think... I, I I agree. I mean, that's the beauty of your magazine. It, it 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 keeps the focus on history. I mean, there are a couple websites out there too that do, but but for the most part. And I see it when I go to the National, you know, it's cards, yep. autographs, <laughs> you know, yep. but, what yep. a, but what about the history? And, and you know, and I, I don't think until you hold some of this stuff in your hand, you can really appreciate it. I mean, I get an old football uniform or an old helmet. I put it on my head. I try it on. I want to know what it felt like to play with that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I do the I, I same thing, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> if I, I do I it before bed, <laughs> before bed I'll pull out some programs or I'll pull out a uniform out of the closet, take a look at it, and put it back and go to bed with a good feeling and a good thought. That's what I do. Well, as I tell everybody, what a, one thing that I've done over the years, and it, Brenda finally understands it now, I pull out one of my old media guides, and I'll read it before I go to bed, because I normally read about an hour or two before I go to bed every night. And she said, you must have read that media guide at least 20 times over the past, you know, six <laughs> or seven years. I said, well, I enjoy reading it. And then, you know, I could pick up some obscure fact about a player or whatever that I didn't I miss, you know, the first five times I read it. And uh, I, I have a bunch of media guides from the 50s, and I, and I go through those all the time. I just love it. Or my old Street and Smith's. In fact, I was reading the other night a 1943 Street in Smith I picked up, and I mean it's it's classic World War II football. I mean it's just it's amazing, and you read in history. That's what it's all about, and uh, learning about the game. And I'm still learning about this game every day, uh, especially with the magazine, and especially talking with uh, you know guys like you. I mean, veteran historians of the game. That, that's what it really comes down to. So, Bob, we're, we're going to head to our goal line stance. Any final comments or thoughts? No, I'd just like to say thanks for having me on and giving me the opportunity to talk about my collection. I, mean, I just love to talk about the history of the sport, and and so I really appreciate uh, having a chance to do that, and I appreciate folks like you and Martin who are out there keeping the history alive. No, it was well, nice talking weird. to you, Robert. We we appreciate your your collection, and again, I, I received so many comments uh, initially for the super collector, and I, I've I've come upon some very very interesting collections over the years. But I'll tell you, when I met you and and you were telling me about it, I said, wow, I, I can't believe it! Literally, was, in all the years I've been doing this, you're the first person I ever knew who actually got into the physical aspect of the game, the footballs, the headgear, the uniform, like, like, I, I've never, I never dealt with anything like that. I was just, I, I was in awe of it. So I, I truly appreciate you coming on to the show because you really gave us a, a, a great education on many pieces of your, um, your collection. And again, it was winter 2014 issue that you were featured as a super collector and issue 54, uh, which was uh, two issues ago about your oldest football. So if anybody's interested in those copies, we have ordering information on our website. And um, and by the way, Bob, your your extra issues went out on Friday, so you're all set with that. <laughs> okay, great. No, no, and, and I did have a couple of things in your uh, issue number 53 as well, some interesting help. Oh, okay. so folks may all want right. to take a look at those as well. Okay, good. All right, thank you for being on the show, Bob. I appreciate it. Great, thank you.
right, we're down to only a few more minutes left of our show. It's time for our goal line stance. Uh, it'll be a new new handoff here to Martin. Any thoughts or comments on what we learned on tonight's show? It was truly amazing. It, it rekindled so many thoughts just going one after another through my mind. And uh, the thing that kind of touched me, though, this is kind of off the subject, is that he spoke of his wife, and you spoke of your wife, and I've gotten, I've had two divorces, one wife saying I love Hugh McElhaney more than her, and the other one saying <laughs> I love Joe Montana more than her. And what really strikes me is that what a fanatic I really am. Uh, and, and I've come to the conclusion that, my collection and collecting is more important than anything probably besides my children. And and uh, listening to Robert talk about his collection, I know how much passion he has for his. And, and I'm thinking how much passion I have for mine. And I start to think, well, gee, I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. There's other people who also have passions for their collections. They're just not in it Mark. to make a few bucks, you know. Martin, I can assure you there's many, many passionate collectors out there who are not concerned about value. Uh, I'll just I'll, I'll make a real quick story here. There's a friend of mine who I've traded football cards with probably for almost 30 years now. And he always tells me, you know, Bob, I'm going to have a big problem when I go because I don't know if that, you know, what would anybody do with my collection? And here's a guy, he, he's you know, collecting pre-World War One football postcards and stuff all the way up to the new year. You know, he's got an amazing collection, but he says to me all the time, I've had a, a great run, a great fun doing this. So uh, how do you put a price on that? And uh, it's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, just learning about, learning about all this stuff, the fun of the hunt to collect. I still get excited going to tax sales. Brenda and I, you know, hit a lot of tax sales during tax sales season here. I still go to a lot of local shows. I never know what I'm going to find. Um, you know, going to the nationals more become a, more of a social event for me than finding anything because it's it's nice seeing a lot of collectors, readers of GG, you know, people like yourself. People. You're like in a Bob. great part of the yeah. country though, because out here in the West, Bob. It's not like when I when I go back east and I go to Chicago, New York, it seems like I'll go yep. buy a newsstand and there'll be like 100 people looking at Chicago Cub magazines or whatever. And I'm yep. thinking, Jesus, it's not like that out here. You know, and it seems yep. like nobody cares. But I, I, I think back east, you're passionate fans. Maybe that's because that's where it all started. Football started yep. back there. And yeah, I think, and I get uh, it. Myself, growing up in the 60s, I, I, I treasured every magazine I got, and I kept it. I, you know, I was, I was a pack rat. I, I collected everything, so I, I established my own collection at a very young age. But I think you're right, because there's a lot of passion. And I see it more in Chicago. I saw it a little this year in Atlantic City, um, yeah. where I saw, I saw a bunch of people I hadn't seen in a long, long time at a regional show. And I saw people I never saw before coming to a national, and they were they were you know poking around trying to figure out what was going on there type of thing. And uh, again, to me, Atlantic City was smaller than the last Chicago national or even the Cleveland national. But you still had a lot of interesting things there, a lot of interesting stuff, and it was it was somewhat of a good education for some people looking at this stuff at the same time. But you're right. Um, I think yeah, Chicago especially, yeah. That's why I think the people who run the national are very comfortable with the Atlantic City, Baltimore, Cleveland, Chicago uh, uh, route. Because I know after after Chicago this year, 2017, they'll be in Cleveland uh, in 2018, and I know that's going to draw that you know strong football and oh, yeah. crowd there. Yeah, because right, like down. I said. But it was sure interesting listening to Robert talk about his collection. It made me made me think about you know how I got Leo Namalini's water bottle or Bobby Lane's flask yeah, that he took a yeah. couple of shots of whiskey from. These were all things I picked up on the sidelines. But I guess I could consider yeah. myself lucky that I grew up working at the games, than just starting to collect uh, from the outside maybe at a later age because I grew up with right. the, uh, collecting. So right. it makes it a little bit right. more meaningful and uh, it is it is well martin we're out of time thank you so much for filling in tonight it was great talking football with you and, uh, and our guest uh bob tibby 
I have to say goodnight and good night from Gridiron Okay, Bridge, Bob. Where the legends of the Gridiron will always live on. Thank you so much, Thank Brian, you, for being on the show. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Everybody have a great night. Thanks for listening. And again, check out MSB Sports Cards on their website, www.msbsportscards.com and BST Auctions, bstauctions.com. Thank you for listening. You can also check out our website, Gridiron Greats Magazine, at gridirongreatsmagazine.com. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.